Now, as we prepare to look at this text, let me start by just making a simple observation that I want to make before we dig in. Something we need to be aware of as we work through this text. That it can sometimes be hard to fully live out God's will because we are so individualistic. All right, let that sink in. It can be often hard for us to live out God's will because we are so individualistic. That observation is one that we need, especially in America. We are taught individualism to the point that everything is about me, and the result is we forget about others. We can forget that what we do affects others. We can forget that we should think about others. We can forget that God wants us connected to others. Our individualism can cause us to believe that we are the center of everything, that our individual opinion is the most important. And now in the world in which we live, if someone doesn't see the things the way I do, here's what I do. I cut them out of my life. We have a word for that today, right? You you know what we call that, right? We call that cancel. If I don't want to deal with someone, I just canceled them. Here's been the result in our society. We are now more divided than we have ever been. Democrats and Republicans no longer work together to solve our nation's problem. They simply fight each other for the sake of fighting. I'm fully convinced. Races of people in recent years have even seemed to start battling again against one another rather than working together to find answers in unity. Christians no longer accept that there are secondary issues that in the whole scheme of things do not really matter. Instead, they fight and separate over issues that we should maybe agree to disagree on. Increasingly, we see the haves and the have-nots at odds with one another, and on and on I could go. But what is clear in our day and time is that division has increased, and in part, it is because of our individualism. As we read our text today, we will see that division has existed in various ways through the years. However, there is an answer, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let me remind you that this letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to Christians in Ephesus. And though we have made some observations about these Ephesians, at least I haven't stressed the fact that the Ephesian Christians came from a background that wasn't Jewish. Now, in hearing that, some of you will wonder, well, what's the big deal that they didn't come from a Jewish background? Well, the big deal is this. That the scriptures clearly teach us that God chose the Jewish people as his people in order to work through to bring the message of salvation to the world. Paul knew this clearly because he had grown up a Jew. He knew what it meant to be a part of the Jewish nation. And when he accepted Jesus as his Savior and Messiah... His call would have been seen by some as very radical in the sense that when God called Paul, he gave Paul the mission to take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, we might overlook the significance of that, but we shouldn't because of the vision that existed in Paul's day. In verse 10, where we ended last week, Paul reminded that the believers that because of God's grace, that they were God's workmanship created for good works. I mean, that is an amazing declaration as it is awesome to think about that we are God's handiwork. Isn't that a big deal? We're his handiwork. But look at what he says next, beginning in verse 11, Ephesians 2, 11. He says, therefore, all right, now this one word ties everything that he's going to say back to what he has already shared about us being originally dead in sin, objects of God's wrath, but then saved by God's grace. So Paul is saying 
In light of what I've just shared, all right, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here he is reminding these Gentile believers that at one time their condition in life was very dire. When it said that they were separated from Christ, it meant this. It meant that they had no hope of a savior. You see, the Jews are like all of us. They often lived with the reality that the situation around them was bad, often bad even because of their own choices and rebellion against God. But the Jews always lived with a hope. They always lived with a hope that there was a Savior who was going to come. In fact, they looked forward to the one who would come and save them from their sins. The Gentiles, though, they had no hope. In reality, they were stuck in their sinful and difficult position because they had no hope of a savior. Not only that, they were also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That meant this, they were stateless. All right, for those who are citizens of Kentucky, you are part of the commonwealth of Kentucky. Did you know that? All right, we're actually a a commonwealth. And when you're part of a commonwealth, being a part of it has some benefits. You see, the Jews were considered God's chosen nation. God ruled them through his covenants, his laws, his prophets, his priests, and even at times his kings. That meant that they had the rights and privileges that came with coming with being a part of the kingdom of God. The Gentiles, no citizenship, no rights and privileges of God's kingdom. Their condition was dire. Furthermore, they were strangers to the covenant of promise. Now, somebody tell me, what's the opposite of a stranger? A friend. Yes. Y'all on it this morning. All right. The opposite of a stranger is a friend. The Jewish nation really began with Abraham as God made a covenant with him. And in James two, it says this, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. See, through his covenant relationship, God's people benefited from a special relationship with God where although he is still God Almighty, although he is still holy and altogether greater than any person, he allows his people to call him friend. Friends who were a part of God's promises. The Gentiles were at one point not friends, but strangers outside of the covenant of God with no promise to look forward to. Furthermore, they were hopeless. This should make sense, right? I mean, if they had no hope of a savior, no citizenship in God's kingdom, no friendship with God, no hope of his promise, and they were stuck in their condition, all right? It it should be that they were hopeless, right? Worst of all, it even said this, that without God, all right? They were without God, and so they were godless. The Gentiles probably wouldn't even have noticed that last part of their condition because they worshiped false gods, but because their gods were not real, they could not save them from their hopeless condition. Now, now maybe hearing what I have quickly shared with you, for those who were here last week, you hear echoing of what Jonah shared as he talked about the believer's condition before Christ as being dead. It is, in essence, this this same truth. Now, and like last week, because of God's grace, these believers had experienced a change. 
Last week, Paul reminded believers that they had went from death to life. And now Paul, in verse 13, reminds these Gentile believers and others of this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mean, think about what that one simple verse changes. Those who before were without hope of a savior now have the hope of one who can save them from their sins. Those who had before had no citizenship, therefore no rights or privilege from God, now are citizens of God with all his benefits. Those who are strangers to God are now friends. Those who are hopeless now have hope. Those who are godless can now be godly or maybe put better, they can be close to God. I don't know if you really grasp the significance of what Paul said, but we have to remember that we are the Gentiles that Paul spoke about. Unless here this morning that you've come from a Jewish background and your heritage is Jewish, today you are one of these Gentiles that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 2. You get that? Because Jesus, the Son of God, came and offered his life up as a sacrifice for our sin, we each have had the opportunity to be brought near to God, and that is no simple thing. That is a big deal. And look at what, let's look though at what Paul said next to help us understand the importance of what he's saying. Verse 14, he says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, that's a lot, so let's break it down. First, Jesus provides personal peace with God and strength for life. Look at verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Here's one thing you need to know this morning, that if you want peace in life, the only way to have peace is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is true first because what what causes much of our pain and unrest in life is the fact that we are not in tune with God. I mean, when your life is not connected with God and things are going to be off, there will always be this sense of something missing. There will always be this sense of dissatisfaction. There will always be a wanting for something more. There will always be a lack of peace. And a person can only find satisfaction in God. And so when there is a break in the relationship with God, things are not right. One is not peaceful. Now, for some of you, one thing I know is true. You're dependent this morning upon the internet. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I know that's true, right? You, 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 need, you need to be connected. Some of you are saying, what's he talking about? Well, you know, if you work from home and the internet is not working, you're just completely frustrated because you cannot get anything done because you need the access to your information, right? Right. For others, you're lost without the internet because if you cannot connect to the maps on your phone, then you're lost. You don't know how to get anywhere, right? Others feel uninformed without the internet because you get your news from some news agency on the internet. And so if you can't get on daily and check the news, you feel like you're out of the loop. For others this morning, all right, you, you got to have that social media fix because if you can't get on your social media this morning, whatever that is for you, Instagram, TikTok, you know, whatever it is for us old people, uh, still Twitter, I can't call it X, it's still Twitter, right? 
If we can't get on there, somehow we're, we're lost, right? Because we, we got to be connected, all right? If I, if I don't do that, all right, I mean, I feel so disconnected. Now, again, don't raise your hand if you're lost without the internet, but my guess is most of you fit in that category this morning. However, let me tell you that a disconnect from God is worse, worse because God is the source of life. He is the giver of truth. He is the source of strength. He is the giver of grace. God is the one that offers forgiveness and eternal life. And when you are disconnected from him, I'm here to tell you, all is off. All is off. We should know this by now, but all of us at one time was disconnected from God because of sin. But as it says in Romans 5, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, look at this, we have what? peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, peace with God comes through Jesus Christ. And for anyone today who finds yourself far from God, Jesus wants to bring you near. He wants you to be connected to God and find peace. Peace will be found nowhere else. Not any amount of money you earn is going to give you peace. All right, not in the number of relationships you have on earth. Not in the amount of accolades you achieve. Not in the amount of degrees you earn. Nothing apart from a relationship with God will ever give you personal peace. And the good news is, is when you are connected with God, you have peace with him. And here's another great truth. When you have peace with him, he gives you strength for life. And here's how I know that, because listen to what it says in Philippians 4. He said, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And look at this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Hear me. When a person is connected to God, there's no need to worry because you understand that the God of the universe is in your corner. All right. And if the God of the universe is in your corner, what more do you need? Nothing. If today you're going through life and you have no peace, I, I would want to ask you, do you know Jesus? If not, that, that's where peace begins. But if so, if you already know him, trust him with your life today and experience peace because he is prepared to meet your every need because he indeed today is your strength for life. Now, Paul wanted these believers to grasp this personal peace that Jesus brings, but honestly, he wanted these believers to understand something even deeper. He wanted them to understand that Jesus provides peace with others for shared life and ministry. Look again at what he said, Ephesians 2, back beginning back in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, look at this, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, Paul is writing to Gentile believers who are the ones who are at one time far from God. The Jews, because of their special relationship with God, were close to God. Though, let me say quickly, their hope is Jesus as well. All right. And because of the different dynamics of these two groups, there was clearly not only a separation, hear me, but there was really a hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, at the time that Paul wrote these words, speaking about a dividing wall of hostility, you need to understand something. And most of you probably didn't even realize this, all right? 
that in the first century there in the temple complex there, there is literally a dividing wall in the temple. Okay. A wall beyond which Gentiles were not to go. There, in fact, our archaeologists have discovered there, there's this, this writing and there was an inscription on that wall that said this, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Wow. Wow. Sad and unbelievable. To help you grasp this, can, can you imagine this morning if you walked in a church and you came there in the front entrance and you, you came through the covered uh, you know, entryway and then you walked through the front doors and as you made your way into the foyer and then you got to the main wall right outside the sanctuary and you saw the cross hanging on that wall. And, and let's say on each side of that wall, there were signs hanging. Okay, And as you walked in the sanctuary, there were signs that said, no Hispanics may enter here. Or you saw a sign that said, no homeless may enter here. Or how about a sign that says, no high school dropouts may enter here. Or, or no Democrats may enter here. Or no Republicans may enter here. Or no people with red hair may enter here. I added that because my mom's redhead. <laughs> well, she's gray now, but she used to be red, all right? How about no one over 60 can enter here? No kids can enter here. Let's go on and put whatever list of people that you want to put there, right? But how would you feel about that? I would hope this morning you would say, that's horrible, but let's be honest. Let's be honest. We often erect these barriers in our lives, if not by physically putting signs on the door, but by practically ignoring people or excluding them or treating them differently. If every one of us was honest this morning, we have a tendency to gravitate towards people who are just like us, whether that is the color of skin or the economic level or the educational level or the professional level, maybe even the athletic level, definitely interest level and political affiliation. In one sense, that's normal and that's going to happen. However, folks, when that turns into excluding or ignoring others, then it has moved to a place that is not only unhealthy, I'm here to tell you it is ungodly. Here's what Paul is clearly saying. That God through Jesus Christ has destroyed all those dividing walls. In Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave nor free. No male or female. Nor black or white. There's no rich or poor. There's no educated or uneducated. For in Christ we are all one. And because of this truth, there should be a peace with others. As Paul put it, Christ has killed the hostility. In Christ, we should be united with those different than us in order to accomplish a greater purpose than us. I'm going to put it to you this way. Within God's church, we should have unity. But unity doesn't mean uniformity. For within God's church, there should be great diversity. Do I need to read that again? I'll read it again. All right. Within God's church, we should have unity, but unity does not mean uniformity for within God's church, there should be great diversity. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it would be hard to get people from all the different backgrounds I mentioned a while ago, working together and being unified on something? I hear yes, right? Do I hear it? Yes. All right. I want, no, but wait a minute. Before you answer it, I want you to think, I want you to think really hard. 
Can we get that many people? Could we get everybody in this room on the page together, unified? Even though we're even different in this room, though, you know, we're pretty mono, right? But could we? Well, let me show you a picture this morning. All right, put it on the screen. Some of you will recognize this picture. It's called the Big House for those who are sports fans. It's where the University of Michigan plays their football games. Some of y'all will even know this, that uh, I, I wasn't a fan of this, but Michigan won, all right, uh, the, the recent college football championship just a few weeks ago. Well, that stadium holds around 107,000 people, okay? I think the record attendance is like 115,000. Know this, that is almost the population of Hardin County. It's more than three times the population of Elizabethtown. Y'all got that? Big numbers, right? So we're talking about it'll hold all of Hardin County, three times Elizabethtown. Do you think today 107,000 people can be unified? Yes. Won't you go to the big house sometime during a Michigan game and see what over 100,000 people are doing? They're yelling for their team together, right? They're uniform. They're unified. I have no doubt about it. And here's what I'm going to say. You ready? I will guarantee you in that crowd, there's great diversity. I will guarantee you in that crowd, there are different nationalities. I will guarantee you there are different economic levels present. I'll guarantee you there's a mix of educational levels. No doubt, very different political leanings present. On and on, I could go with the diversity that will be present in that stadium, and they will be unified cheering their team on. They, I bet, could even do this. I bet if they wanted, now this might be a little old school, so I don't even know if they do this anymore. I bet if they wanted, though, at least in the old days, I bet they could have got a wave going around that whole stadium. <laughs> I guarantee it, right? They, they, I, bet, I bet they could get a wave going, and here's what would happen, right? Everybody would participate except probably this one little blotch in the stadium, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Because that's those few tickets they give to the away team. And the only reason they're not cheering the only reason they're not unified, hear me, they're cheering for a different team. They're on a different team. Everybody else, they're rooting, right? So if you can unite people around cheering for a team, do you think it should be possible to unite people around the gospel of Jesus Christ? We should be able to. Believers should be able to set aside the things that divide them in order to love and to care for one another. Christians should be able to live at peace with one another. In fact, listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13. He said, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. When I hear these Words of Paul, and understand that within God's church, we should have peace with each other. And the thing that is on the line is this, the God of love and peace being with us. That's a big deal. I mean, if the opposite is true, not having peace with each other means the God of love and peace not being with us. I pray that we have a unity in Christ that would allow the God of love and peace to dwell in our midst. What is at stake in us being unified? 
It's our peace. And, and here's what I'm going to believe. Okay? I probably should, have, probably should have put this in my notes. I probably should have put a slide up here. But listen, I really believe if Christians would honestly focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we could be unified. Our problem is this. We're looking at other things other than the gospel. Let's just call it like it is, all right? I'm being honest. That wasn't in my notes, but God convicted me over the week, and you need to share that because that's the truth of the reality. The reason there's so much turmoil in churches today is because we're not looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're looking at everything else. And God said it's the gospel, all right? That should be our focus. And in that, all dividing lines have been dropped. Now, Paul said Christ has broken down these walls of hostility, and I want you to see another important reason why we need to be unified. Look as he continues to write, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built, look at this, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, if we're going to be who God wants us to be and accomplish all that God wants us to accomplish, we need one another. Paul uses the analogy of a building. Christ is the cornerstone. That's the most important part of the building. But then we, hear me, we are being, let me say this right, we we are built being joined together. Think about the bricks of a building. If the bricks are going to be strong on a building, you know what you have to do? You tie them together, right? You overlap them. You don't stack bricks on top of one another. Why? Because if you do that, they're, they're, they're weak in all the joints. All right, so, so you overlap them to make the structure strong. That tells us as believers, we need each other, and we are only as strong as we can be when our lives intersect and when we overlap and help each other when we are built together. I don't know if you've been around building sites where Brick is being put on a building, but there can be a pile of bricks that's left to themselves. You ever notice that pile of bricks? These are the bricks that didn't make it into the beautiful wall on the building. In reality, those bricks are, again, they're not part of the structure, but second, they are useless because they're just piled up with no purpose. I want to challenge you today. You ready? Don't be a part of the piled up bricks. Don't be a part of the piled up bricks. I want to challenge you today, all right, to be a part of what God is doing. Don't separate yourself from others and don't say, I don't need to be a part of the church. I don't need to be connected because that is not so. The church needs you to be complete and you need the church to be complete. So make sure that you are plugged in and apart because as part of the church, you are a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by his spirit. I mean, if you ever wonder why this is important, we need to read into chapter two or three, And for time's sake, I'm not going to read much, but in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul really speaks about the ministry that God gave him to make sure that the Gentiles understood their place in God's family. God had specifically called Paul to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, the group that, again, who at one time had been excluded. So sometime do this. Go back and read the first 13 verses of chapter 3 and listen to what Paul says about his ministry. 
Now, in the middle of his discussion, he says something that's so relevant to what we need to see this morning. So look here what he says, picking up in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, look at this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, Paul confirms that God had given him a mission personally, not because he deserved it, but because of God's grace. The purpose was to preach or to proclaim, to share the unsearchable riches of Christ. In other words, to share how through the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus, there's hope of moving from death to life. How there's hope of going from being separated from God to be brought near to God. All this because of God's grace. Not because one has earned it or deserved it, but simply because God is a God of mercy and love. Paul said, God gave me that mission so that everyone might know God's plan, a plan that included not only Jews, but Gentiles. In other words, God had told Abraham from the beginning that the whole world might be blessed. But after Paul confirms his personal mission, he confirms the mission of the church when he said, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And here's what's interesting to me is that it might be known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It's an interesting phrase, but think of it this way. As God's plan of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ through the church happens, even the angels are watching as the mission unfolds. All right? I mean, how, how, how awesome is that? How awesome is to know is that your audience, as you do the work of God, is the angels in heaven. Is that awesome? I like to think, oh, that's kind of cool. The angels are watching me. But they're watching me as I do the mission of God, all right? Again, your, uh, uh, your audience is those heavens, those heavenly places. Now, with that said, I, I must make this statement. The church is God's plan, and every Christian should be a part of it, okay? The church is God's plan, and every Christian should be a part of it. The, the, the church is God's plan to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And so if you're truly going to be a part of God's plan, you must be a part of his church. John Stott shared some words on his commentary about the first part of chapter 3, and, and he writes this, and I want to share them with you. He says, some people construct a Christianity which consists entirely of a personal relationship to Jesus and has virtually nothing to do with the church. Others make a grudgingly concession to the need for church membership, but add that they have given up on the ecclesiastical institution as hopeless. Now, it is understandable, even inevitable, that we are critical of many of the church's inherent structures and traditions. Every church in every place at every time is in need of reform and renewal. But we need to be aware of despising the church of God and being blind to his work in history. We may safely say that God has not abandoned his church, however displeased with it he may be. He is still building and refining it. And if God has not abandoned it, how can we? It is a central place in his plan. Looking more fully at what Paul said, even considering Stott's 
commentary. This is something that should be clear, and I'm really just restating what I just said, but I want to say it again just a little differently. If you want to be a part of God's plan, you need to be a part of his church. I have no doubt that many here this morning would say, you want to be a part of God's work in the world. If that is so, you can only fully fulfill that call, all right, as a part of God's church. Yes, Paul had an individual call of God, but he always tied that calling and used that calling as part of and in cooperation with the church. And let's not forget, that calling was to make known the truth of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. It was to go and make disciples. It was to let people know clearly who Jesus was. That is the church's mission, and it is God's plan. And I want to ask you today, are you a part You see, God is still calling us to this mission, and it is part of the reason I asked you, again, at the beginning to consider, who do you need to invite to Easter services? And even before that, who do you need to share Jesus with today? Because that is our mission, that is our goal, to share Jesus with a lost and dying world. All right, let me, as I prepare to close, ask three closing questions quickly. Number one is this. Do you have personal peace with God? If not, that's where it all starts with you today. If for some reason you feel separated from God, maybe you feel hopeless, friendless, like you have no place that you belong and nothing to look forward to, God wants to change your position in life. He wants you to move from being far away from him to being near him, and that happens through your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you. If today you'll confess your sin, confess your need for God, and confess that you believe truly that Jesus came, that he lived a sinless life, and he offered up that life on a cruel cross to pay the price for your sin, then three days later rose again to prove he was the son of God, to prove that he could forgive you of your sin and give you eternal life. If you confess those things to take control of your life and give you eternal life, God will give you new life, and he will give you peace today. That's what he offers to you. And today, if you confess that and follow him in baptism, expressing that faith, I have no doubt you can find peace with God. If that is your need, the invitation is going to be for you to come and to place your faith in Jesus and find peace. Second, do you have peace with others? I'm here to tell you, God truly has broken down walls. The bears that put up, that we've put up, that divides us from others. If today there is a barrier that you have erected that keeps you from ministering to others or with others this morning, you need to come and ask God to work in your heart. Ask him to help you deal with the prejudices. Ask him to help you deal with judgmentalism. Help you deal with your hurt, possibly your feelings of superiority. And ask God to give you a heart for others. Ask him to break down the walls that you've created that's keeping you from loving others. Another step, even for some, might be this, to come and pray, Lord, make us more diverse. For maybe, you know, today we want to look and pray, God, help the church look more like what you want the church to look like with other ethnic backgrounds, other cultures, other nations worshiping alongside us. Again, ask that God might make the church more like it's going to look like in heaven where there's going to be people from every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping God. Maybe that's what you want to do. Come and pray that we might experience more of that. Third, are you connected to God's church? For some, today is the day when you need to join the church and say, count me in. I want to be a part of what God is doing in the world through his church and specifically what God is doing here at Valley Creek is this part of God's church. For others, you are already a member, but you need to commit during to do your part. Maybe you've been on the sidelines, maybe like those bricks over there with no purpose. Decide that you're not going to be a brick in a pile. Decide I'm going to be a part of the beautiful thing that God is building. 
So I'm going to be put in, and you're going to come and make that commitment. Say, I'm ready to volunteer. I'm ready to take a bigger row. I'm ready to witness to my friend. I'm ready to share the gospel. I'm ready to invite someone to church. I'm ready to volunteer in family ministry. I'm ready to take a mission trip. Just say, I'm ready. Let's, let today be the day when you begin helping the church make known the manifold wisdom of God. That manifold wisdom that is this, that Jesus saves, that Jesus saves. Again, we're going to have this invitation. I don't know your need, but I pray today that God's spoken to you. And if there's a need that you come, receive Christ for the first time, have a dividing wall broken down, or be a part of God's church. What's your need this morning? Would you pray with me? Father, I, like Paul, am thankful that even though I am the least, that, Father, you've given me an opportunity to preach your word. And Father, your word is is full of that great mystery. That mystery that once was not known, but now is known that Jesus indeed is the Savior of the world. I pray that today while I've been sharing that you've spoken to hearts, maybe at different times and maybe just through one part, one word, one phrase, or maybe even, Father, you spoke during the time of singing And there's been somebody here today that has a need. You're calling them to have that need fulfilled in you. Whether it's a need for salvation, whether it's a need for unity, whether it's a need to have a part in your church. Whatever it is, Father, today, I pray if you've spoken, there'll be those right now ready to respond to your wonderful mystery. Because, Father, today I know that I would not stand without Christ, without his grace. I'm hopeless, helpless, I'm a stranger. I don't have a citizenship. All those things are true of me without Christ, but I'm so thankful that in Jesus I've been brought near to you. And Father, I know that what I've experienced is something that you want all to experience. And I pray, Father, that some would come today and again, just draw near to you. God, let your spirit move in this place, change lives. I know without that spirit moving, nothing's gonna happen here today, but I pray that in this moment, some may respond. Maybe even a student that made a commitment this weekend or an adult who made a commitment maybe even weeks ago that today, though, would be the day they'd step out and say, I'm ready to make my commitment known and make that commitment to God. So move, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.